This is the Borders of Equality podcast. In this episode, we're talking about the future of borders after COVID. All around the world, governments are coming up with new technologies to control and monitor the spread of the virus. In Beijing, travelers from abroad must spend 14 days in an isolation facility. In Moscow, CCTV cameras are used to monitor quarantine violators. In Hong Kong, travelers must wear an electronic wristband connected to their phone to monitor where they are and make sure that they stay at home. Controlling the spread of the virus has created an ever-expanding demand for data on citizens. Where they are, whom they've met, their health status and antibodies. What does this mean for democracy and civil liberties? Does this need for data mean a shrinkage of individual rights? Are we witnessing the same rise of state controllers after 9-11? Our guest is Matt Longo. Matt is an assistant professor at Leiden University and the author of The Politics of Borders, published by Cambridge University Press. Matt has written extensively on borders, security, and human rights after 9-11. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. We wanted to chat a little bit about some of the concepts that you raised in your book and some of their applicability to today's situation. So just to start off, you talk in your book about the expanding projects of rationalization and what you call securitization in border control. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what this means and and what they entail. Yeah, of course. Fantastic. So I, um, perhaps to, to cut some of the jargon, I will say, you know, one of the um, experiences of, of now reconsidering some of the things in the book, having had enough discussions about them, I feel slightly insecure about the sheer amount of jargon I use in the book of large words that I could have, um, or I used instead of smaller ones. And I think the general point I meant to convey with those um, terms is, is two things. The one being that we make a distinction between, uh, in general, we talk about societies, not even particularly about borders, uh, between what we think is either reasonable or just or rational in the way we treat migrants versus what we would say the same about citizens. And part of the point of my project, which of course is to look closely about or at and about the border, uh, was in a way to, to destabilize all of that in the sense that we know that in a, you know, in a very uh, loose way, borders are everywhere now. We know we, that we border everywhere. We border abroad. There are border posts in different countries and visa offices and different kinds of protocols. It's not a, an unfamiliar thing to say the borders is everywhere, so to speak. But even given this general understanding, we still default to these categories of citizen and migrant as though they're still a binary, right? A zero, an A, not A. And uh, part of what I meant to say in this part of the book is, is that actually what's happening with these new kinds of data protocols is that uh, those terms are increasingly not helpful for the sheer fact that what states are doing in terms of the monitoring of their own citizens has basically caught up to the ways in which they have monitored um, migrants or non-citizens on their territories uh, is the first side of that coin. So within a polity, yeah. we now have a kind of monitoring um, internally where it's just not clear that uh, in all of these Western societies, you know, the case I know best is the U.S., famously with things like the Patriot Act. I mean, we have uh, these very expansive laws that allow for 
uh, privacy breaches, et cetera. And, uh, but it's not just within a polity, it's also internationally. The, just the distinction between um, not the category of citizen and migrant per se, but what we do in how we understand um, citizen and migrant, how we process them, right? How we trace them, how we code them is becoming more and more similar every year. And so what we're doing is ultimately taking uh, away that distinction. Um, the example I give in the book is about uh, risk ratings. I talk a lot about risk ratings. The idea that, you know, when you return to your own country, wherever you're from, let's say you're traveling, uh, what determines whether you get back into your state actually has very little to do with what your nationality is, what your passport says. Like when I come home, I live in Holland now, and when I come back to the U.S. where I'm from, uh, whether the U.S. takes me in actually has entirely to do with my risk rating, how risky they view me to be. The fact that I happen to be a U.S. citizen is completely unimportant to that calculus. And you can you know, ask any Arab American right, what they feel about that question. The idea is that there are all these kinds of data points that determine my riskiness. And some of them are more, quote unquote, reasonable than others. You know, I mean, for example, things like histories of violence, it doesn't surprise us that you might be questioned at a border. Uh, but a lot of other more complicated things, you know, the fact that you might have have um, uh, certain religious markers or, or racial markers yeah. um, that make you more likely for a border guard to stop you, for example. And my point is to say that whereas we in the intellectual community still cling to these categories of citizen and migrant, the data world has totally moved moved past them. And actually, where the terms we're trying to use for, for the sake of analytic clarity are ultimately becoming impediments to that clarity. Mm. And uh, so anyways, that, that's sort of the general point. And if you um, want to put this back into, into academic language that people are often familiar with, one of the terms we use for it is this idea of legibility which uh, in political science, we trace back to the writing of James C. Scott, uh, but also it's very common in, in the writing of Foucault and sort of Foucault's later admirers, uh, the idea about the way the state makes citizens or people manageable or knowable subjects. And uh, so, the, the, so the point is to, the, of the, my contribution in the book is to ask whether or not the analytic categories of citizen and migrant are helpful. Um, mm -hmm in that process. Right. So this idea, these ideas of rationalization or securitization can almost be understood by what you're describing as kind of their consequence, maybe. So this collapse between, or this collapse of the difference between the insider and the outsider. Um, I wanted to ask you about this a quote from Carl Schmidt that you used about how the essence of politics is this determination of friend and enemy. And initially I was thinking, this distinction has changed a lot in sort of COVID times because we have sort of an enemy which is identified as a virus now instead of sort of the migrant in the same way. But actually what you were just describing made me think about instead of just that the virus is identified as an enemy, but also kind of that fellow citizens and like that the sort of internal body politic is somehow also being scrutinized. Is that one way that we can understand this quote? Yeah, that's a great question. So I um, I really like to think with and work with Schmidt, despite Schmidt's dubious um, background, <laughs> right. uh, to, put, to put it mildly. Uh, uh, I guess so here's how I would re react to that. I think that the, the, the broader way I would couch the problem as asking whether or not there's something internal 
that is enemy-ish that we're learning, so to speak, to, to rephrase you in a slightly weird way, um, I think is absolutely the question. I think that in a way, on this domain, the border has become a red herring, right? There's the, actually the internal heterogeneity within polities vis-a-vis citizen-subject, uh, sorry, citizen-sovereign relationships uh, is the domain now of interest. I mean, it is so complicated. Um, and in that way, part of when we reread Schmidt, what we have to do is ask about the clean division he creates between inside and outside, friend and enemy, right? Because, you know, for Schmidt, all of his concepts, and in his own language, I think it's actually in the concept of the political, um, no, it might be political theology. I think that's the second sentence after the very famous one about sovereign is he who decides on the exception. I think the second or third sentence of that book is that ultimately sovereignty is a boundary concept, right? It's a bordered concept that you are within a boundary sovereign and there's inside and outside. Mm-hmm. And as much as sovereign decides on the exception, sovereign also decides on who the enemy is, right? But that declaration is much harder to sustain in a world in which uh, the idea that it's a, that there are boundaries that are fixed uh, evaporates. But more particularly, even if they're fixed, if ultimately the lines we draw internally are as acute as the lines we draw externally. And therefore, uh, the, a, lot of this, a lot of the ways in which we have to rethink Schmidt's point is to reconsider whether we're making internal friend-enemy distinctions within a polity uh, that are as extreme as the one outside the polity. Therefore, his uh, uh, predicate of sovereignty, the idea that there's a unified polity against which the outside is existentially threatening, uh, falls apart. Mm-hmm. In terms of COVID, you know, the whole problem with the whole with the, the thinking about this as a virus is that, of course, the virus cannot be the enemy in Schmidtian sense, right? Schmidt sense literally means that there are people, there are human constructs, human societies, that if you do not get your house in order, they will somehow burn your house down, right? It's very much, it really is a, it is a conflictual uh, sense of politics between different peoples peoples defined as as groups of individual that have some kind of marker as such um in a way not that different than later when Rawls talks about peoples i mean it's not that, the idea of peoples isn't that contested but you know the virus uh presents a different kind of challenge which is that it looks as though the virus is the enemy uh but actually the virus isn't the enemy in any real sense beyond you know that storms are the enemy right or climate change or uh, all the different ways in which human society has dealt with the natural world as making things more complicated the enemy is still uh in schmidt's language uh other human societies and so if you want to make this a schmidtian discussion the way to do it would be to ask whether or not uh different societies are using uh COVID, or using the, the example, the, the sociological predicate that COVID is providing uh, as a means of taking advantage of each other. And there was so much politics, certainly in March and April, the beginning of the crisis, um, around this point about who is going to develop the, the cure and who is going to take credit for it. And when, you know, there was this question of whether or not the US and China would work together, for example, um, when obviously this would be the time in which it would make sense to uh, put politics aside and all collaborate. But, you know, the the Schmidtian worldview suggests against that, right? That there is no kind of natural threat that's big enough to make it reasonable 
for these polities not to also consider each other to be existential threats at the same time. And so the, the, that would be the way I would talk about COVID if you want to talk about Schmidt. Um, okay, right. Would, yeah. Well, this is quite, a, this is quite a, a pessimistic, sort of almost fatalistic conception of what the multilateral system can do for us. Today. It is very liter- very difficult to be anything except pessimistic when you're wearing <laughs> when you're wearing your Carl Schmidt hat. <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. Right. Carl Schmidt is more or less the world that like the last like the last hundred years, uh the, the most intellectual pessimist you could you could put your you need to hang your hat on one on one pin for intellectual pessimism. He's the guy. <laughs> right. Do you personally find it find it convincing, Mr. Kelly? Oh, I think there's a lot of ways we have to rethink Schmidt because I think that Schmidt is still the the idiom when we talk about sovereignty. I think that there's a a thing in academia. In academia, part of its strength and part of its weakness, in a way, is uh, this this point speaks to both, which is that we're a very slow moving, very backward looking community, and it means that you know we care about doing things well and doing things carefully and parsimony, etc. But it also means that we're often caught playing yesterday's game, right? Preparing for the last war, so to speak. And intellectually, uh, it is true that we are still using Schmidt's idiom, uh, in part because another one hasn't come and replaced it. And Schmidt's idiom, in this sense, is this way of thinking about sovereignty as uh, this linked question of bounded political units and political antagonisms. I tend to think there's a lot of, I mean, actually, frankly, a lot of the point of my, my book is to argue against certain versions of that uh, idiom, and that the idiom of sovereignty has to change. But to particularly hone in on this point vis-a-vis COVID, you know, COVID's kind of an interesting uh, test case in this sense, right? Like, it, if Schmidt is wrong, we would expect a certain kind of behavior of states that say, okay, this is literally a pandemic. Mm-hmm. That will affect all polities and in biomedical terms affect all polities equally. It's not like certain kinds of people are more likely to get COVID in certain kinds of countries. It is actually like oh, the idea that there were that that COVID was a um an egalitarian disease because it affects rich and poor the same, that's crazy. Of course it doesn't. I mean that's that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Of course the poor the poor will die quicker because of uh, um differential access to health healthcare and that's a that's a nonsensical point. But biomedically it isn't like there are certain kinds of people that are going to be affected differently. It's not like Asians have some kind of special, you know, genome that prevents them from getting sick. It's not it's not meaningful. Everyone is equally susceptible to this pandemic. Therefore, if there was ever a prompt that said, okay, we can get past the sovereigntist paradigm, this would be it. Uh, you would then see the kind of multilateralism that Schmidt rejects. And the fact that we haven't seen it might be, in a way, a defense of Schmidt, right? In a very perverse sense. It might also just be that when you're, you know, when one of the most powerful leaders of the world um, is is as stupid and incapable as the one you know, on top of the U.S., uh, it's also possible that Schmidt, you know, allows for those kinds of actors, even in the case of pandemic, and different constellations of actors might act differently. But I will say, unfortunately, I don't know that I see a lot of evidence now that would make me doubt Schmidt's point. If anything, Schmidt comes out of this looking a little bit stronger. 
that's a bit my, my question. So, so this impossibility of multilateral cooperation, this pessimistic view of all countries coming together against this common threat, to what extent is it an absolute and, and relate to the, the nature of relationships between states or, or can, it, can it not be also connected to the nature of political leadership that we have at the moment that you just mentioned? Yeah, exactly. And that's always, that's, that's, that is the, that is the empirical nut to crack of whether or not this is a story about systems and structures or whether it's a story of individuals. If it's individuals, then it becomes a much more particular claim. Whereas if it's about systems and structures, it's something that verges on the universal. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't have any insight into that. Um, it's not, it's not the kind of study that I, that I do or that I'm particularly equipped for. What I can say is that uh, uh, there is a kind of um, there is a kind of insularity across the world in their response to the pandemic, a kind of protectionism that does seem to accord with the theoretical priors of Schmidt. And so whether or not we can, we can extrapolate out from that, I have no idea. Um, so would you say that this is indeed just qualitatively, uh, qualitatively, uh, qualitatively different from something like a terrorist security uh, threat in a way that makes states more insular, uh, insular and less likely to cooperate. Yeah, it's, so that's a, that's an interesting way to put it. So, uh, or an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Terrorism uh, is in a way the classic Schmidtian case, right? Because it's a political, uh, it's a political threat that's existential that comes from the outside. And uh, there's very little um, when you read about terrorism that that someone like Schmidt wouldn't uh, jump out of his chair and say, ha, I told you, right? Because in that sense, uh, sure, there's different kinds of multilateralisms, but sovereignty persisted. And the question of, of naming the other as the existential threat or as the enemy is precisely what not just the U.S. famously with George Bush's, you know, axis of evil rhetoric, but frankly, all the states of the West did in different kinds of ways. And the um, so in that sense, from the politics through the naming, right through the rhetorical, uh, so f from policy to rhetoric, uh, that was true. The virus is just a different kind of case, and it's also possible that because we're so new in this process, it is only a couple months in. Maybe it's reasonable for the instant reaction for all these polities to say, clam up, become protectionist, and you know, seal everything, shut everything down, etc. And that will at least get us back to the point on the curve that we were aspiring to, meaning to the point where it's not like you eliminate the death rate or sorry, reduce the death rate or eliminate death, but that you at least get it up to the point where the hospitals have the capacity to handle it. And that's the first stage of the crisis. The second one is to say, okay, let's put our heads together as a community of countries, of peoples, uh, and do something together. It's possible that will come. But, you know, in general, I don't think any of this is particularly uh, damning to that Schmidtian view of sovereignty, though, in the sense that at the end of the day, the, the virus is something we'll manage together, but we'll manage it together without, in my suspicion, ever relinquishing uh, the kinds of sovereignty that Schmidt would suggest we would never relinquish. You know, and, and, and to put this back into the, the broader picture about the ways in which sovereignty relates to these international threats, et cetera. I, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the point of, um, of my book 
was arguing that, you know, because we're stuck in the sovereignist way of thinking, it's very easy to see all the examples in which we clam up um, and uh, re-sovereignize, so to speak. Uh, and I think that terrorism was just a classic example of that. And uh, often they take place in very loud, public, clear ways because sovereignty is a secure notion. It makes us feel comfortable, right? The idea that there's a, a polity and that you're being protected from the outside. You know, Wendy Brown's book, um, Walled States Winning Sovereignty, discusses this quite well, that at least those visions, those fantasies of sovereignty are well understood and well documented, that we do feel safer knowing that those the barbarians are kept at the gate, so to speak. But a lot of the point of my book is to say that focusing on those instances, those barbarians, those terrorists, uh, takes us away from all these other ways in which sovereignty is changing. And that actually involve ways that, that um, through, for example, at border areas, forms of collaboration that will uh, yeah, change the idiom, that will extinguish those, those classic binary in-out sovereignist views, even as rhetorically we build them up. And that actually this embodies other kinds of political fantasies. And famously, that includes expansion in the imperial sense that, you know, borders are frankly impediments to big states. You know, states like the US, big states, hate being hemmed in by borders. They love being able to go into Mexico and take care of their business on Mexican soil and at the, ha at the, you know, at the cost of the Mexican economy and Mexican death. They don't want to wait till people come to the U.S., right? Same with terrorism, all these things, you know. And so actually, by focusing on these cases in which sovereignty is reaffirmed, we miss all these ways in which we're actually doing something that might be much worse and much more terrifying um, than the nation state construct of sovereignty, which is something imperial and the expansion outside. And ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what we saw with COVID, which is that the powers that are already strong enough to you know, so to speak, colonize other countries, um, certainly the uh, health and data services of other countries will use this as an opportunity to do so. And uh, that would be, so that would be my kind of fear um, if you want to break out of the sovereignty box of this prompt, uh, as opposed to the, the kind of warrant that came out of the um, strict sovereignty attacks from terrorism, so to speak. So in your, in your book, you emphasize the role of data uh, and especially the expansion of technologies that have been developed since 9-11 in particular to control and monitor citizens where, they, where they've been. There, and you talk about these risk profiles. It seems to me that the pandemic has created an ever greater demand for the very technologies uh, that, you, that you talk about. If in, so states, in order to limit infections, will need to know where we've been, with whom they've been in contact uh, with, or maybe our health records. So do you think that this crisis will be used uh, to expand this state capability to control people? Does it also mean a shrinkage of, of, of freedom in some way? Yeah, I think that's precisely the question. I think that you... Um... I think that hit that hits on the on the on the point we 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 began with, this question of of in a world in which it's rational for states to take ever more data about people, not just their own citizens, uh, whether COVID creates the platform to justify a massive additional, um, almost a colonial extraction of data, basically from everywhere, and I fear that it does. 
my uh, general hunch is that uh, this is sort of an ineluctable process and that this is what states have decided to do. I do think it comes out of uh, the experience of globalization, the experience that states were under threat. I mean, if you think back to the the exuberant rhetoric of the 90s about how nation states were falling away and borders were irrelevant and markets were open and technology was virtual and you know hyper real and all this stuff there's this crazy rhetoric in the 90s and i think part of why all of that fell apart as an argument is that no one really accounted for the fact that what states would do isn't just clam up and close their borders which is to say do a thing that no one thought was powerful anymore no one thinks you really can totally close your border sure Instead, what they would start doing is just collaborating and realizing that states uh, in common all face a threat to stateness. And therefore, what you'd have is not some silly binary between states versus this like global community thing, but actually something much scarier, which is states aligning their powers, co-bordering, so to speak, and making this ever more powerful engine to suppress migrants and and moving bodies and moving forms of trade and capital, et cetera. And so there's this broader process this fits into, which is that once states started to realize the threats they shared were ultimately in common, uh, it made sense to uh, start to use state powers, collaborating in ways to make states more powerful vis-a-vis their subjects. And in this case, the the, the paradigm for that was was data. Now, what COVID's done is provide, in a way, a second great justification for that uh, theft, the data theft, the data exploitation after 9-11. And what it's done is given us a new platform, and the new platform looks like this. It says, uh, we always want to use data to distinguish. We used to talk about it vis-a-vis riskiness. The riskiness was about, um, you know, terrorist versus healthy, sane, reasonable, good person, right? That was the dichotomy we drew. And you uh, uh, could use data in incredibly powerful ways to distinguish who is a terrorist or possible terrorist like we never could before. It was just like, it was almost like the greatest toy the states ever got to play with data. And uh, I think the example of that, that the one example I like to, to talk about um, is, I'm not sure if I quote this in the book, I might quote it in the book, but there's this, uh, it was right after 9-11, uh, one of the data analytics firms, Accenture, came out with this incredible quote. So after 9-11, the U.S. was in shambles. Everyone was terrified. It had just been breached. It was the biggest breach on U.S. soil in, in half a century, I mean, since Pearl Harbor. And the U.S. society was in total shambles. And like a couple of weeks later, uh, a lot of data analytics firms, but famously Accenture, came to the rescue and said, don't worry, we'll take care of this. We got this. And the statement was, if you in the same week bought 200 pounds of fertilizer and called Pakistan, we know who you are, right? This very powerful claim saying our data is so wide ranging and our data capabilities are so strong that, you know, sure, buying fertilizer, maybe you're a farmer, but calling Pakistan, you know, sure, maybe you're just a regular person that called Pakistan. But if you did both, the likelihood that you're a Pakistani Muslim terrorist who's going to bomb us with the fertilizer that you use to make, you know, some kind of weapon, uh, now we're on you. We're going to watch you. 
And frankly, half the country went, oh, fantastic, we're going to be safe. And that was the security-minded half. The other half of the country went, oh, no, this is going to ruin us. And that's the freedom-minded half. And, you know, there is always that, that split, that dichotomy between security and freedom in that sense. And we saw civil liberties wither away at that moment. This is providing, so COVID is giving us a second version of this exact struggle. Now it's not, did you call Pakistan? But now it's, can data prove that you're healthy? Can it prove that you've developed antibodies later that you took a vaccine? Can it prove that you're safe to go to work, that you're not contaminated, uh, that you're not, um, uh, that you don't have the contamination, that you're not spreadable in some way, that you won't infect others? And because of that, data is going to become an impossible to reject tool. And what that means is that we're going to start to see the same kinds of ways in which it became discriminatory and biasing uh, come back again. So whereas before it made it sound like this, this, this perfectly scientific algorithm was using its science to cut through human biases and only determine who was really risky, now we're going to say, oh, we have all this great data and use it only to determine if people are healthy. But of course, we know that's not what's going to happen. In fact, what's going to happen is something like this. We're going to say, so let's say, uh, you know, you're from the US, you're a very fancy, rich, wealthy country. And we want to say a person coming from Holland, uh, you know, is is uh, totally, we trust their data. It's totally a safe country. When Holland says that their people have taken tests, we believe them, we'll let them in. But a third country, somewhere far away that we trust less to begin with, I don't know, someplace in Africa, for example, we're going to say, oh, we can't really trust their data. We can't trust if those people coming in are safe. And on a purely rational standpoint, that actually makes a ton of sense. It's totally easy to sell that to the public, to say, people from Holland totally safe, took a test, we trust the test, they're not going to spread COVID. People from random African country, half Americans haven't even heard of, uh, are totally unsafe, totally untrustworthy, and therefore we don't believe they're not going to spread COVID. When in fact, that rational statement is uh, bearing with it the undercurrent of prejudice, which is to say, we don't mind Holland people coming in because they're also rich and white you know, and we don't like people from this mysterious African country coming in because they're dark skinned, they're poor, they're all the people we anyways don't want as immigrants. And so we're going to use the data as this scientific way to make ultimately prejudicial decisions about, for example, immigration and travel that will end up further, you know, dichotomizing the world and leading to further inequality. And, you know, and so this is exactly the fear is, is, this, is this exact prompt. I think it's really interesting, this idea that it, the question is no longer, did you call Pakistan, but can data prove that you're healthy? I think that's really well put. And, it, and it's interesting to consider the differences between what those two questions are asking data to do, because they really represent to me a sort of intrusion into the body in a much more explicit way. I think that kind of was implicated in this whole biopolitics of the Foucauldian discourse. Then, then the question, did you call Pakistan, which is, which requires data to speak to an activity that you undertook using specific technology. Whereas the question can, are you healthy 
is like just just this deeply sort of personal biological almost anatomical question that if we have technology that allows us to answer it um starts to become to my view a much more threatening incursion into the into the personal than the first question yeah and that makes sense i think it makes sense because there is a universal characteristic of covid right this is that thing that actually does affect everyone you know but that might also be the particularities of your own experience the truth is is that uh the the whiter you are and the or i guess the more you are fitting into any kind of dominant uh of the of the dichotomies of the dominant side of the dichotomy i mean the more likely you are to be white the more likely you are to be male the more likely you are to be highly educated or of the you know upper echelons of wealth etc the less likely other kinds of biopolitics will affect you and so part of the harm of previous systems is that they uh, were really invisible for most of society. And one of the fascinating things about COVID, because it affects everyone, is it's visible to everyone. And that's actually a huge, huge opportunity, uh, culturally and, and, and politically, for us to seize upon it, to say we finally now have something everybody understands, right? Literally every human in the world that's remotely plugged into the news understands the ways in which this question of health is going to start to determine, for example, access to rights packages or so forth, whatever. And uh, I certainly felt that way in my own life. You know, part of the reason I started talking about borders is because borders were where I started to understand my own kinds of privilege. You know, it was only after I had spent a lot of time living and working in the Middle East that I really got stopped at borders, where I would get stopped, I would be taken to secondary, I would be um, interviewed, I would be, I would have my bags unpacked, I would have my passport taken away from me, and suddenly I became, quote unquote, as if Arab, right? I became someone who, if the Arab world was threatening, I became plausibly threatening by association. And I started to understand ways in which biopolitics, so to speak, worked, the ways in which the body is determinative and the ways in which society or as a state was using its its power um, uh, on that register. And I had not seen that before. I didn't know it in the same way. And so I think what part of what undergirds your question is just that this is an experience we now can fully say we all uh, appreciate in that in that way. And therefore it's the opportunity to really then talk about it critically to address it, etc. Uh, but just to make a quick Foucauldian point off of what you said, you know, in terms of what what theorists of the last half century, what thinkers uh, really uh, are shining right now, it's really terrific when you think of how much time we've spent talking about Foucault and biopolitics in this very uh, uh, comparatively banal way of talking about the ways in which, I don't know, certain kinds of biometric data might be included in a, in a passport to create kind of virtual body doubles and these kind of interesting things are all Foucault's inspiration, so to speak. But for Foucault, the bottom line was always health, right? It, it, like the idea, there's always the shadow of the leper colony, right? The shadow of medical distinctions of sanity uh, 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 behind Foucault's words. And there's a way, there's a way in which it's very hard to to interpret the present and not be a little bit awed at some of the bits of Foucault that we thought, oh, that was interesting. 
but that doesn't pertain to us. <laughs> Suddenly, it really, really feels like, you know, he saw something. Um, so, if we think about political alignment, so you talked about nine eleven and terrorism. It seemed to me that the resistance to this, you know, increase in state power and and encroachment on, on human rights after. 9-11 came very much from the left, whereas the, the issue of emphasis on security uh, came from the right. It, things seem a little bit different now. I haven't really seen that much resistance to you know, the expansion of contact tracing and technologies to, to check on, on people's health from, coming from the left, but rather the resistance seems to be coming from you know, the right and, and the libertarian right. Do you see a difference there? Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's a really smart observation that the, um, I think that the timeless question is always security and rights, that there will always be a division between security and rights in the sense that uh, we believe, I mean, okay, libertarians are a little bit um, more exceptional in this regard, but most of the other schools or ideologies um, or schools of political philosophy would accept without any difficulty that there's some kind of trade-off between what you can do as a right-bearing individual and what um, the state can do to you. And the idea that there's something like security that says as a public good, we all want to be secure, and we accept that there are certain kinds of rights we might forego for the sake of security, and that's important for, uh, for justice, for the, you know, the just social order, so to speak. I just don't think that's that um, controversial. But the fact that we've seen a flip between the left and right on this uh, is, is an interesting one because you definitely had the, the sense that after 9-11, it was the right wing that was saying, um, you know, security over everything else. And it was the left wing that was saying something like, oh, be careful, don't trample on civil liberties. And now you have the right wing saying something like, don't step on my liberties. And the left are the ones more likely to say, uh, at least in some version of shut everything down. And I wonder, I'm now thinking aloud, um, I wonder if the difference uh, philosophically on these points is that the, uh, the shut it down movement uh, doesn't necessarily see this as anything to do with the question of freedom. And uh, maybe it's because it's temporary and maybe that's a mistake. I mean, frankly, I think a lot of us who are critical of the Iraq war and are critical of the war on terror always felt that this was going to be not a temporary thing, but a never ending thing. Whereas with COVID, I think we're more likely to say all of us socially to say, okay, this is something we're going to endure for a year or two. And therefore, really what this is about is a short-term reduction of freedom, if that's even the right word. I'm not confident it's the right word, but let's just run with it for a second. Uh, but it's really just a short thing. It's more, more like an emergency in that sense. And I think it's, it's a question to ask whether or not that's true, whether actually what COVID is doing is uh, changing the normal and will be a thing that we fight for not a year or two, but a generation or two. And uh, if people thought of it that way, as frankly, I think they should, and you know, a lot of the whole point of the argument I was making earlier about how I think COVID is going to be this platform 
uh, whereby states completely change the the language um, of of uh, data craft, you know, and the usurp usurpation of rights and the expansion of data protocols. Uh, if you think that way, then there's something harder to reconcile about those positions. But I don't think that's what's happening. I do think the reason that the language sounds so different in the short term um, is particularly because there's this sense that this is just a couple months, um, a temporary emergency, so to speak, not a realignment of the social, which might be a huge error. Because the only voice that I've heard, say, on the left um, criticizing this, uh, you know, state of emergency and lockdowns is, is, is this Giorgio Agamben in Italy that wrote a, a set of blog posts presenting, um, well, you know, it, it was really vilified quite justly in many ways because he said that COVID was not really such a big deal and that the state was just using it to expand state power and the police state and reduce civil liberties for something that wasn't really worse than the flu. So that's why he got a lot of flack for this. But but it was quite striking still to see on the left that any opposition to to the measures that have been taken were always presented as, you know, you're going to make people die and that's what matters. And, and that's, prob that's probably right. But it isn't, isn't the left a bit naive though? Uh, yeah, I absolutely think so. I don't think that the left comes out looking very good. I can't. I can't speak to the Agamben piece, uh, although I, I tend to love love his writing. I haven't read the these blog posts, um, although I have seen the the Twitter chatter around them, and it's not good. <laughs> There's a lot of negativity around uh, Agamben's position, but I I can't speak to it directly. Uh, no, I don't think the left has handled this very well. In part because I think that there is a. Um, no, let me let me let me let me let me make two different points. Part of this is that the difficulty in general with anything that creates a prompt like COVID does in our contemporary era is that because the media world is so hysterical and Twitter is so hysterical and you know, etc., uh, it's very easy to have everything distill to two paradigmatic, exceptionally extreme positions which are embodied by the one side, the shut everything down culture, and everyone who doesn't shut everything down is trying to kill you, uh, which is the caricature of the left. And the right side, uh, which is the, you know, gun toting, making me wear a mask is the same as like putting me in chains, uh, you know, America, yeah, yeah, you know, crowd. And I think that both of those polls are slightly inaccurate. Um, in the sense that I think that the majority, at least as I've seen from polling, uh, the majority of people kind of support some version of shutdown, but uh, basically allow us enough leniency and normalcy to not become destitute, right? You know, there's kind of like a, there's a, there is a middle position. So I, I slightly balk at this as a general statement, but philosophically, I think there's this, this undercurrent of the claim that the left sort of made a mistake in how they handled this about a, um, by going in the direction of this shut everything down culture uh, for two reasons. One, they ended up fetishizing authority, which is not what the left should do, given that the left at its worst has always had that 
uh, way of at least being considered as angling towards totalitarianism and angling towards, you know, communist, Soviet, whatever. And it's very authoritarian, the instinct to cancel everything, shut everything down, etc. And I don't think that that philosophically is smart for the left to take that pose. Um, but the second feature is that I think the left has sort of missed its opportunity to make this as it always should have, which is always a statement about healthcare and inequality, which is to say that the actual story of COVID is that who's dying, the poor are dying, and who wasn't prepared, healthcare services weren't prepared. And uh, that's just such a more reasonable kind of attitude um, that can emerge from this. Um, and it's just it's just very sad to see how much those two points have been dotted away by these hysterical voices. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point. It makes me think about the analogy that you made earlier to natural disasters. So whether whether COVID can kind of be likened to um, like the sort of the an earthquake or something that we would need to prepare for in that respect. And it's prompting me to reflect on whether it might be fruitful to think about alternatives to the approach that we've taken now, or that a lot of governments seem to be taking now and the private sector as well, to just sort of really hone in on this contact tracing element and sort of try to better identify and classify and and manage this population in the sense of the rationalization that you described. But when we, approach natural disasters that's not um according to my understanding sort of the leading way to do it it's instead conversations around resilience uh infrastructural development could this be another way to think about alternatives to responding to public health crises are there other ways that in the past maybe governments have tried to trade off between liberty and security when it comes to sort of a a threat like the one that we're facing yeah, that's a fascinating way of putting it. I actually think in general, thinking about natural disasters uh, is a really great heuristic because uh, going back to Schmidt for a second, it takes us out of this very comfortable political friend-enemy world where it's very easy to think about. It's very, so the human world is so messy and questions of politics and ideology, it's just so complicated. But there's something very straightforward about the question of natural disasters and this question of resilience and infrastructural readiness and preparedness. And there's something about it that, sure, there's politics, everything has politics to it, uh, but there's a lot less, there are fewer dimensions of politics than when the quote unquote enemy is an outsider. And uh, as a little aside to that, one of the interesting things that came out of my uh, empirical research for my book is that you know I spent a lot of time in uh, border expos, these, these sort of bazaars of, of uh, traders and state figures and you know entrepreneurs and people trying to make the border. Um, and I was all ready to talk about the border. You know, I came armed with my uh, couple years of political philosophy training and you know I had all these questions about the state and the citizen and I was all ready for that. And then I show up and actually a lot of what these discussions were about had to do with natural disasters. And I didn't totally 
understand how to process that then. So I'm not sure I know how to process that. Um, but it was definitely left out of the book. It wasn't I didn't really talk about it. And as a sort of postscript to the book, I now wonder if that was a mistake in the sense that they, there was something very, um, yeah, creative about the way states approached natural disasters at their border, meaning everybody understood that, sure, we can quibble about whether money gets through or borders get through, guns get through or migrant bodies get through. But, you know, if there's a, if there's a tornado, like we, we have a totally spelled out emergency reaction system that is completely integrated cross-border, right? And, and uh, the cleanliness of that response is inspiring. Now, whether or not it doesn't then get perverted by politics, okay, that's life. I have no idea. Um, but the point is, is that it's always there. And I think it's nice the way you put it, uh, because I think that there's, there's, a, there's a way we could take um, that example as a prompt in a situation like this to see how we might think about modes of collaboration that cut through s some aspects of the politics that are um, uh, politically retarding, right? They, that retard the process of, um, of progress or being able to execute a solution. This framing of border security as um, in terms of natural disasters, isn't it a bit the same process that, you know, I, Adolf Eichmann framed his own work in terms of a logistical problem and a technical problem without thinking about, you know, the nature of humankind and, and, and good or bad. Isn't it because natural disasters are in some way devoid of the, you know, normative debates that surround other more human issues? So framing, you know, border security as, you know, the right technology to solve a problem, it's also a way to put aside everything that you actually learned in your in your graduate program about political philosophy and the citizen, that's really not the frame that these people in these expos use because it's also much more convenient probably to frame it in more technical and devoid of normative loading framework. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I'm very grateful that you drew the comparison of me to Eichmann. I've always felt like he was a, you know, a hero and a, and a beacon of, of wisdom to, 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 to mirror in my own life. Uh, Not no, you. I think that's, and I'm kidding. Uh, that, no, of course, of course, of course. I think that's precisely the point. The, I compare you to Anna Arendt, rather. <laughs> and then, see, now, now we're much warmer. This is good. Uh, I, I like where this is going. So, uh, I, 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 no, I think the point, though, is that the, precisely the problem with what uh, Eichmann did, is that he turned humans into numbers. And part of the point here is that exactly with disaster readiness, the thing being talked about isn't human, right? It isn't about uh, um, uh, human agency or human actors. Uh, in, and, you know, a lot of Arendt's critique of Eichmann, of course, is that there's there's no, that the whole his whole conception of agency was so impoverished. Uh, but what well, yeah, but but it is fair to say that the the fact that we can be progressive with non-human crises in a ways that in ways that we fail to be progressive with human ones is literally only an excuse or an opportunity to be or realize how we might be more progressive with human ones. And in that sense, I totally take that point that there's something very powerful. Um, in thinking that way, taking the prompt 
of the relatively depoliticized, non-normatively complicated political event, like a storm reaction system, and grafting that response onto the more normatively complicated one. I also wonder whether this isn't an element of the the left-right sort of confusion that we were discussing before. Could it be that that the left is maybe conceiving of the threat as being this sort of more apolitical, maybe more out of our control sort of external threat than it did conceive of terrorism? And I know we discussed before a little bit that, okay, the virus isn't really the enemy, but maybe the public is kind of conceiving of it in that way, and that that's allowing for our standpoints on, on security to kind of be relaxed or loosened. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how to respond to that, except to say that in the American context that I'm most familiar with, it actually seems like the, the opposite is happening, which is that because of the the inability of the left in America to see anything except the 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 demonology of Donald Trump, uh, what ends up happening is that things get hyper-politicized and everybody in a way almost forgets the virus. Now the obsession is, look how badly Trump is handling this with the subtext being, you know, please, please make it so that he can't win in October or November. And uh, this obsession with his elections and obsession with making the right look bad and Trump look bad is totally bare knuckles, standard meat and potatoes politics. And unfortunately, that means that the virus, which presents all these kind of new and complicated and interesting ways of thinking, uh, you know, it, it disappears. And so I, so I don't exactly know how to, to answer you, right? So I think that in a way, I almost wish it were true that we could have a depoliticized other, so to speak, in the form of COVID, as opposed to uh, politics as war by another name that we seem to have in the in the Beltway. Right. I wanted to to ask. Um, so, so the picture that you that you draw in your book of the expansion of state control that we can see accelerating now with the pandemic it it leads to a pretty bleak, you know, idea of the future of democratic rights. So there's going to be an expansion of data control and, and 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 all these kinds of dynamics. So my question would be, can this expansion of security be accompanied with democratic control? It seems to me that you know the, the countries that have been presented as examples of successfully fighting the pandemic so far have been in Asia, especially China, that has you know used all these technologies that you talk about with contact tracing and people get apps and they people monitor people's temperature at airports and, and is it possible to have a democratic version of that yeah i think that's a great question you know to in in the book for me the whole point of doing empirical research is that it creates a platform uh from which you can start to engage uh more interesting normative political theorizing with a informed sociological predicate and in that sense, the idea that there's something dangerous about state expansion and dangerous about co-bordering has to be met with democratic institutions. And uh, for me, that meant 
because uh, because to me the dominant idiom here would be citizenship because when you talk about expansions of sovereignty and the idea that there are ultimately people that have two sovereigns uh, the only fair way to treat that that individual is to offer them two kinds of citizenship or expanded citizenship rights to match the expanded state rights or state powers and so to me that was that that the the general prompt was the same and the answer was more straightforward here i think you'd have to do the same kind of reasoning and ask whether or not there's a uh, a kind of rights regime necessary to respond to uh, this basically increase of state power, this usurpation of power on behalf of the state. And my hunch is to say the main thing will come down to whether or not testing uh, becomes a uh, data predicate to um, any kind of rights bundle that we take for granted in the present. So this idea that I talked about earlier about how the fear is that there will start to become distinctions of people based on whether or not they have data saying they're healthy that ends up becoming a way for states to usher in judgments um, that allow them to exclude people they don't want, you know, those kinds of problems uh, are the kinds of places where you actually can have uh, democratic rights expansions. And uh, the rights surrounding people that have tests, especially uh, tests that make them um, more imperfect. I don't exactly know what that would look like, but you know, I mean, generally speaking, the test that reveals that you are someone to be concerned with, uh, you'd have to build up rights protections to make sure that those people aren't completely um, excluded from the workforce or kicked out at borders or abused. Um, so in some sense, I think that answer is clear. Uh, the difficulty arises when there's no societal appetite for those rights. And I think part of the problem with COVID is that we're all going to become so paranoid about health that the idea of getting rid of people that are unhealthy is going to become so attractive. And you then have this problem, which is always the problem of democracy, which is what happens when the rights claims you need for a just social order conflict with popular conceptions and the desire people have um, and will ultimately voice in the ballot box. And in that sense, it's not that different from the kinds of crises we had um, in America with race, right? I mean, think, you know, for, for example, uh, a lot of the uh, history of America is, is uh, majority populations in certain states, right? Democratically elected state leaders uh, having incredibly racist policies that were totally popular. And it was not, uh, uh, democracy didn't have the tools to usher in those rights and until there was civil disobedience and, you know, the civil rights claims. And, you know, they think that we're going to have this problem again, where there's going to be things that from a purely liberal or rights-based um, viewpoint make sense to protect people. And yet, if we don't have popularity to support them, um, we're still going to have a lot of trouble. And I think that's a fight. That's a fight that's sort of looming ahead that we need to be, we in the critical community need to be prepared for. Um, so I had two questions. Um, I'll just ask them uh, right now in a row. Um, first of all, 
you mentioned that uh, risks now in some ways become more important than citizenship status in determining how you get treated at the border. And I wonder if that changes due to COVID, where uh, you saw governments essentially ignore risks of their own citizens and uh, take them back when the crisis broke out. Uh, I wonder if you uh, have anything to say about that. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's no doubt that COVID is going to be, in a way, a force multiplier. All of the fears that I talk about in the book, all the risks and the ways in which uh, people are becoming segmented and filtered, uh, all those are going to become more extreme and absent very, very strong protections are going to get worse. And as far as... Um... This entire movement towards co-bordering and collaboration between uh, different governments uh, at the border. Uh, my general sense was from reading your book that this seemed to be initiated by uh, the country that was more economically or politically powerful than uh, its neighbor. And I wondered if that how that uh, should uh, how that should affect how we interpret this co-bordering and cross-border cooperation between countries. Because insofar yeah. as there are two sovereigns that an individual is exposed to, it seems like, uh, or the sense that I got was that the uh, stronger sovereign uh, matters more in both, uh, in both territories that you're, uh, you might be exposed to that uh, sovereignty. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that the... Um, I mean, I think the general point is that any kind of, in almost any kind of politics, the stronger state will try to use its strength as a way to expand its powers and its influence, whether it's hard power or soft power or physical expansion or removing its borders and moving beyond them, etc. And the fear with co-bordering was precisely that, that ultimately this would become something that looked on paper like a perfect, you know, uh, dream of, of, regionalism and you know transcending borders and it's this kind of fantasy space of look these 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 countries are working together they're collaborating i mean collaboration's like the good word everyone loves collaboration we all want to collaborate blah 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 but in fact it was a mask for ways in which power was going to be abused and it was going to be abused in most cases by powerful states uh taking over uh the 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 powers of smaller ones that neighbor them and I don't see any reason why this wouldn't be the same case here, where ultimately you're going to see powerful states exert uh, their force over others. Now, an example of this might be, uh, let's say you are just to, I mean, because I've been speaking a lot about the U.S. in this particular discussion. Let's say we're talking about U.S. and Mexico. Uh, the way in which this might work in COVID is to say the U.S. develops a test. And the test is the U.S. standard. We set a standard. Uh, everybody that passes the test is healthy, you know, to work or whatever. And Mexico passes the test, makes a test, and it says anyone that passes their test makes them safe and valid. And then the U.S. says, okay, we're not going to recognize Mexico's test. And that becomes a way for the U.S. to legitimate keeping out people it doesn't want, but also a means of uh, them being the standard setters. They're being the ones who determine what counts as a good test. 
and then them imposing it upon Mexico and frankly having their tech companies be the ones to develop the tech, tech in Mexico and adjudicate the standards by which the tech is the the test is um, the, is is used, etc. And so there's all these ways, there's many levels at which power becomes exerted over the border. And I just see COVID as basically taking all these trends and making them worse and making them something that, again, we need to dedicate a lot of a lot more energy to um, honing in on. Thank you very much, Matt. What are you what are we working on now? It seemed to me that you told me about research on East Germany. Uh, yes. So I have decided to take the COVID window and rather than do what I should be doing, which is to be writing articles about why my research is so relevant for COVID, uh, which more or less everybody I know has been suggesting that I do, uh, and instead take a mind vacation into the 1980s and uh, start writing up this research project I've been working on for the last couple of years about uh, basically the end of the Iron Curtain and the moral decision-making of border guards who were tasked with uh, overseeing its collapse uh, alongside the story of refugees that tried to cross from east to west. And so it's still a border story and still a refugee migration story, but in a completely different geopolitical context, Uh, that doesn't tell us nearly as much about COVID. <laughs> it's, it's probably less relevant. Were, were you able to find any to find any former border guards to talk to? Yeah, it's it's been fantastic. In fact, I have now. This is already almost uh, yeah two three years I've been working on this, and uh, I have uh, the 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 interaction point I've I've zoomed in on is a breach of the border, the quote unquote first rip in the Iron Curtain. Uh, which took place in August of 1989 in the Hungarian borderlands, where Hungarians who were standing uh, on the Hungarian-Austrian border uh, were confronted with uh, it, the trickles and then hundreds and thousands of East German refugees trying to cross into Austria to get back to Germany, to West Germany. Um, and so this interaction point of Hungarian border guards and East German refugees Um, has been terrific. It's been, yeah, I mean, I have uh, border guards, I have refugees, I have other kinds of state makers and, you know, and I'm doing the same kind of study, the same idea of having a very local level um, mix of in interpretive methods using interviewing and um, an ethnographic study and, but also documents, I mean, texts and newspapers and Uh, to build up a very, very local level story of this interaction point and then ask what it tells us about much bigger questions about states and citizens and migrants, and etc. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Matt, for being on the podcast. Okay, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. That was a really interesting discussion. Lots of food for thought.